Hello, and welcome back to Freud in Focus, a podcast from the Freud Museum London. Now, last time we finished going over part one. This was Freud's di- director's cut of Jensen's story. Now, part two begins with Freud referring to the stated aims of his paper to discuss the delusions and dreams in the story of Gradiva. So Freud begins to discuss the mental manifestations and activities of the two main protagonists as if they're real people, as if the story were a psychiatric case study. He writes the following. The description of the human mind is indeed the domain which is most the creative writer's own. He has, from time immemorial, been a precursor of science and so of scientific psychology. Tom, can you say a little bit more about this link that Freud's making and perhaps take us forward with Freud's initial comments on Hanold's delusion? Well, we've talked before, haven't we, about this um, intimate link between psychoanalysis and literature. And it's not a throwaway comment from Freud here. He does practice what he preaches. It's as if literature acts almost as a catalyst. It propels him into thinking. Now think of Sophocles' Oedipus Rex again as productive of the early psychoanalytic discoveries in the interpretation of dreams and, and, and those kinds of texts. Or his engagement with the literature on the uncanny that we've talked about before, such as Hoffman's Sandman, influencing his development of the theory of repetition compulsion and later on the death drive in Beyond the Pleasure Principle. And also his analysis of Aristophanes' speech in the, um, in Freud's words, poet-philosopher Plato's Symplo- Symposium as leading to his development of the theory of Eros. There are numerous examples of this, really. And there's also that famous quote that's been attributed to Freud, um, which goes something like this. The poets and philosophers before me discovered the unconscious. What I discovered was the scientific method by which the unconscious can be studied. Now, we're not 100% sure that this actually came from Freud. But on display in the museum, we have a, a really lovely letter written by Anna Freud to John Bowlby, in which she describes what the essential personal qualities needed to become a psychoanalyst are. And the final two sentences of that letter read as follows. You ought to be a great reader and become acquainted with the literature of many countries and cultures. In the great literary figures, you will find people who know at least as much of human nature as the psychiatrists and the psychologists try to do. And that's pretty definitive, I'd say. Mm-hmm. So Freud goes on to mention how Jensen often describes Hanold's condition as a delusion and then asks whether this definition is accurate. In Freud's estimation, the term delusion is accurate here as his pathological state is manifested only in mental and not physical symptoms and that fantasies have gained the upper hand over reality. Freud then takes a swipe at the nomenclature and classifications of psychiatry 
which he uh, says always have something precarious and barren about them. Psychoanalysis, as we know, searches beyond classification into the specific causes and determinants of the individual case study. The genius, or perhaps here the devil, is in the detail. Freud continued to take aim at psychiatry in suggesting that a psychiatrist would consider Hanolt to be degenerate and look into his heredity. The author, and by extension the psychoanalyst, will not follow this approach. Both have their focus trained on the personal mental makeup of the protagonist. The author slash analyst does not look into the heredity of Norbert, but into the early childhood, and finds the origin of the delusory symptom in the desires awakened by the early childhood relationship between him and Zoe Bertgang, which have since been become unconscious. The sight of the relief stirs up or activates these childhood impressions, so they start to produce effects. But the childhood impressions themselves remain unconscious. At this point, Freud defines the use of the word unconscious as relating to psychical processes which behave actively, but nevertheless do not reach the consciousness of the person concerned. Where Freud earlier had referred to the shortcomings of psychiatry, here he does the same with the philosophy of his time, which did not accept the fact that there could be mental processes that are intense and produce effects, but are apart from consciousness. Hanold's childhood erotism, awakened by Zoe, was in a state of repression, which Freud describes as a dynamic expression describing the interplay of mental forces. In his own words, the mark of something repressed is precisely that in spite of its intensity, it is unable to enter consciousness. So on seeing the relief, this slumbering erotism was aroused, as well as the resisting repressive forces that sought to keep it at bay. This struggle then manifested in the production of a delusion, or the symptom formation. What Freud adds to this is to trace the development of Hanold's delusion throughout the story, and to show that it is formed of a double set of determinants. The unconscious desire from the repressed childhood memory on the one hand, and the circle of ideas of the science of archaeology on the other. What is key here is that the delusion is a compromise which attempts to satisfy both conscious and unconscious desires at the same time, but it of course can never fully satisfy both. Freud writes, each side must renounce a part of what it wanted to achieve. Because of this, the compromise is only ever temporary, and the struggle between the oppositional satisfaction is in fact unending. Freud suggests that Jensen's plot almost echoes the psychoanalytic understanding of symptom formation in a narrative form. This is really interesting, you know, to hear this connection between Freud's 
theories of of this sort of symptom formation, um, you know, through compromise and the notion of unconscious thoughts, and also the way that Jensen describes the the symptoms of his delusion. Um, you know, after this, Freud turns to the second focus of the subjects, which is you know, dreams. He describes the first dream that Hanold has um, as follows. And if you're if you're following along at home, it's on page fifty five of the standard edition. The dreamer found himself in Pompeii on the day on which that unhappy city was destroyed and experienced its horrors without being in danger himself. He suddenly saw Gradiva stepping along there and understood all at once, as though it was something quite quite natural, that since she was a Pompeian, she was living in her native town and, without his having suspected it, living as his contemporary. He was seized with fear on her account, and gave a warning cry, whereupon she turned her face towards him for a moment. But she proceeded on her way without paying any attention to him, lay down on the steps of the Temple of Apollo, and was buried in the rain of ashes after her face had lost its colour, as though it were turning into white marble until it had become just like a piece of sculpture. As he was waking up, he interpreted the noises of a big city penetrating into his bedroom as the cries for help, the despairing inhabitants of Pompeii, and the thunder of the wildly agitated sea. The feeling that what he had dreamt had really happened to him would not leave him for some time after, after he had awoken, and a conviction that Gradiva had lived in Pompeii and had perished there on the fatal day, was left over with him by the dream as a fresh starting point for his delusion. So, Tom, how how does Freud analyse this dream? Well, firstly, Jamie, it's um, just listening to you reading it, it's such a beautiful passage, isn't it? I mean, it's it, it reads so well, and um, and I think we can all kind of appreciate and and put ourselves into this place where we have this kind of odd dream, and then as we're half waking up, you know, we hear these sounds from outside, and they some somehow become elaborated and kind of intertwined with our dream, you know, and we're kind of interpreting as we're waking. Um, so yeah, just a, a fabulous passage, and and you know, it's perfect for Freud, of course, this because it really gives him a chance to kind of flex his interpretive muscles, you know. Mm. Um, so as we know, the, in the interpretation of dreams, Freud says that the interpretation of dreams itself is the royal road to the unconscious processes of the mind. And in that book, it was Freud's stated aim uh, to pit himself really against the prevailing science of the day that treated dreams as meaningless manifestations of physiological processes, you know, things that were going on in the body, processes that were going on in the body. If we go uh, with the prevailing theory of the time then, Freud suggests that we could say that this is like a simple anxiety dream caused yeah. by, you know, caused by this noise from outside, from outside the city, that Hanold is misrepresenting as the destruction of Pompeii in his dream, whilst his mind is also kind of half occupied by this Pompeian girl. So it's also a kind of compromise, you know, between, you know, but it's kind of driven by what's going on outside, what's affecting us. 
the connection then only needs to be superficial in this sense, doesn't it? So the external noise that he hears turns into the dream of destruction. You know, there doesn't really need to be any further relationship between what's going on in the in the external world, in the outer world, and the internal representation of the dream. Now, if only anxiety dreams were that simple, you know, in Freud's opinion, that's what he's... In fact, actually, when you think about it, it's, it's quite an unsatisfying um, way of interpreting, really. And we're never really left satisfied, I think, by that kind of interpretation. We always want to know more. We want to understand the meaning of the dream. We're kind of driven to that. But how do we really get to what's going on here? So what's happening for Freud in the external world at the time of the dream is not really key to understanding it. Neither is the feeling of melancholy which accompanied the delusional structure as a result of the dream. Although Freud does suggest that we should bear in mind that the after effects of the dream um, lend a kind of a painful colouring to Hanold's delusion. So unsurprisingly, really, Freud points us towards the technical description of the construction of dreams uh, that he put forward in the interpretation of dreams in, in 1900 to find out the key to this, this kind of puzzle, what's going on in this dream. Hanold's dream reflects the key aspects of Freudian dream interpretation. So, a dream is invariably related to the events of the same day. If the memory of a dream seems to persist within, for an unusually long time and to have a kind of intense charge to it, it's likely to persist. Um, it's likely because something in it really did happen as we had dreamt it. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So in the in the day before um, Hanold had this dream, he'd been searching for Gradiva, hadn't we? And Zoe, um, the real life version of Gradiva, was in fact in the same town as him, not in Pompeii, of course, but in the German university town that he lived. The fact that the setting of his dream was in Pompeii is an example of the mechanism of displacement which is crucial for allowing the dream to emerge under the radar of our internal censorship. If dreams can be thought of as a compromise between something that is repressed and a repressing agency, we can see that they have two different aspects. So there's the manifest content that can often seem unintelligible, and that's the dream itself as it's described and then the latent content, which is objectionable, and it has to be kept out of consciousness. To interpret a dream um, is effectively to turn the manifest content back into the latent content, which had been distorted by the censorship of our resistance. Dreams then are distorted wish fulfillments, and the latent content behind this particular dream was as follows, and this is, uh, I'm quoting this from, from the text. After all, you're only interested in the statue of Gradiva because it reminds you of Zoe, who is living here now. But why then should this dream um, have given Hanold the feeling of anxiety? Well, this is where Freud defines another key psychoanalytic, um, an early key psychoanalytic theory, the theory of anxiety, which changes throughout his career. But at this point, 
Freud's theory of, of anxiety is that dream anxiety, like neurotic anxiety in general, corresponds to a sexual affect. It's a libidinal feeling and it arises out of libido by the process of repression. So the connection between libido, repression, and the affect of anxiety is key to Freud's early work. Here we find that the dream has not quite effectively evaded the sensor, and libido that is related to the forbidden erotic yearning connected to Zoe has been met with a fresh repudiation and has been transformed into anxiety. So anxiety at this stage is transformed libido. The libido that's been transformed through repression. This way, Freud's able to maintain that a dream is a wish fulfillment, even when it's an anxiety dream. It's just the wish itself is a forbidden one, has to be repressed and turned, and and therefore is turned into anxiety. You see, there's a process going on. So, in the final paragraph of chapter two, Freud really drives home the crucial link between delusions and dreams. And he also hints at the continuum that, that exists between mental health and mental illness when he writes that dreams are the physiological delusions of normal people. That was a really interesting analysis and really relatable uh, yeah. as well. Um, so now we come to, to part three of the text. And and rather than jump straight into this second dream, Freud suggests that we tread carefully and follow the pathways laid down by the author. What's Freud up to here, Tom? Well, I mean, he's, he's taking us on um, a kind of merry little journey again, Tom, isn't he? Like he often does. But, but, you know, there's, um, well, I mean, I think we we'll start with the fact that, you know, that there's so much in this narrative of Jensen's text that lends itself to psychoanalytic interpretation. So rather than just thinking about the dreams and delusions, as Freud said in the title, it's almost now as if Freud wants to put the whole story onto the couch. So, I mean, he even explicitly states that if one wants to interpret dreams, attention has to be paid to the dreamer's experiences, both internal and external. So now Freud's reading of Jensen's Gudiva has been transformed almost into a fully-fledged psychoanalytic case study. It soon becomes clear really why Freud wants to subject this story to such a detailed analysis. But firstly, let's take the example of Hanold's flight to Naples. Now you'll remember that Hanold has his first dream, and then after waking up he runs into the street, right, looking completely dishevelled, trying to follow the woman whom he thinks is Gradiva. Then, after returning home unsuccessfully, he hears the canary in the window opposite, and he suddenly feels trapped. He then sets off to Naples, driven by an obscure desire that he cannot fathom. So for Freud, there's nothing particularly delusory, actually, about this behaviour. You know, we, we all often find ourselves doing things and going places without any clear, obvious, logical reason. We, we're kind of drawn to something, aren't we, or some place. Or we might say that we find ourselves kind of gravitating towards a particular place without really knowing why. Also, Freud says, 
that we often deceive ourselves over our motives for doing something. Or those motives only become conscious after the event or action has taken place. And, and Freud really puts this down to unconscious desire, which conditions all of us, and which also kind of helps to explain those psychopathologies of everyday life, such as slips of the tongue or pen, the forgetting of proper names, etc., that he'd analysed so brilliantly a few years previously. The intimation of the physical presence of the girl he loved has produced a surge of erotic feeling that in turn has led uh, to the first dream. Now, this dream has led to Norbert's internal resistance gaining a fresh surge of energy, pushing him into taking flight from Zoe and travelling to Naples. But of course, this trip only leads him closer to her. So the repressed desire for Zoe returns in the figure of Gradiva, and Norbert finds himself propelled, quite literally driven, you know, in Freud's word, trieb, driven, like we, we translate that as instinct in English, but it's actually to drive, quite literally driven him towards Pompeii, where he'll eventually come face to face with Zoe herself. You can see why this is such fertile ground, really, for Freudian analysis. You've got this struggle between the repressed desire and the resistance against it. And it's continually in flux, creating unstable compromises that are straining under the power of these competing forces. And then the attempt to flee only leading you closer to the place of forbidden desire. You know, this is the return of the repressed. The symptoms that Hanold manifests are only really exaggerated examples of what we all experience in the face of unconscious desire. And the difference is often a quantitative one. The strength of the instinct and the strength of the force of resistance that attempts to repel it. And of course, the human activity that links all of these things together for Freud is dreaming. So one other aspect of Jensen's descriptions that help Freud to draw psychoanalytic equivalents from this text is the behaviour of Zoe herself. She seems to enter into Norbert's delusion in order to slowly bring about his cure in as sensitive and painless a way as possible. Later on in his analysis, Freud will discuss how Zoe emerges not just as a real human being from the shadow cast by Gradiva, but as a kind of physician, a kind of proto-analyst, if you will. She becomes, to a certain extent, extent Zoe Gradiva, retaining the trace of the object of Hanold's archaeological desire. But I, I think we're going to get onto this at a later date more. Mm, honestly, this text is so brilliant. It's almost it's like wonderful, a, isn't it? It's like a tick box of Freudian sort of theories, you know, anxiety, dream theory, return of the repressed, you know, all of these things sort of coming into it and, Definitely. you know, it's analysis of fiction, but it's it's so rich. But I mean, this is, it's the interesting thing really, isn't it? Because mm. it, it is driven by fiction, you know, this is driven by creative writing and this, you know, Freud, it's one of his clearest and most kind of precise definition of these psychoanalytical terms and it's not in a text which is you know, a kind of a meta-psychological text. It's a text about a creative piece of creative writing. And I think that's kind of the remarkable thing about Freud's inspiration. 
I don't mean to test you, but when was uh, his paper on creative writers and daydreaming written? Oh, a little after little after this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really I can't remember the particular year, but it's definitely in 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 his head. You know, this kind of stuff. This what you know. What does what what can we get from these imaginative writers? This kind of you know this creativity of thinking. Mm. Well, well, let's get to the the second instance of a dream now, which which Freud quotes Jensen describing it as this remarkably senseless and and woven together from the delusions um, and and impressions from the day before. Freud, of course, then looks to make sense of the senselessness. So here's the dream then, and this is from page 72 um, of the standard edition. It says, somewhere in the sun, Gridivo was sitting, making a snare out of a blade of, gra of grass to catch a lizard in, and said, please keep quite still. Our lady colleague is right. The method is a really good one. And she has made use of it with excellent results. Okay, so a very short dream, very short, certainly enigmatic, um, and it even has a spoken phrase in it. But you know, Tom, how does Freud unravel the the threads of this this short dream? Well, uh, I mean, I mentioned earlier, Jamie, that this has now obviously become a case study, yeah, rather mm. than a piece of literary analysis. Although, as we've said, it's kind of driven by literature, it's now become a case study. So it's not surprising then um, that Freud really treats this dream in a way that he would treat a patient's dream or an analysis dream when they're on the couch in his consulting room. So rather than try to discover the meaning of the dream as a whole, as a kind of narrative arc, what Freud suggests we do is to break it down into its component parts and treat each part independently and analyze the memories, impressions, and free associations of the dreamer in order to arrive at the latent dream thoughts. Of course, there's a big problem here, isn't there? Because we can't ask Hanold, who's the protagonist in a, in a novel, to free associate with this dream, you know. So, you know, you know, what happens, of course, is that Freud steps into the breach. You know, Freud says <laughs> he, will, he will take the role of patient analyst. So humble. It's a humble, it's a humble move, yeah. It's a humble gambit, but you know, I, it's, it's. Bear with me because I think it's fair enough on Freud's part because he has done this before, of course, with the interpretation of dreams itself. You know, which is a, which is a book that contains dozens of Freud's own dreams, and then his free associations and his memories and connections with, with those dreams. Um, so he's got a track record, but it's a bit cheeky. But anyway, I think we can let Freud get away with that. So the dream is, of course, only about four and a half lines long, but Freud gives us, gives us an analysis which takes up nearly 10 pages. So, but, you know, we shouldn't be too surprised about this because by taking each phrase of the dream individually and using the rest of the novel as the free associative material, we get a passage which resembles the famous analysis of the Wolfman's dream that Freud published in around 10 years later in which each segment of Pankev's dream is treated as a standalone unit of language which contains multiple meanings and references. And of course, this explains why we can allow Freud to get away with this technique, because it's almost as if he's treating the rest of the novel as the stuff that the patient's saying in, you know, in the consulting room. So the novel itself becomes the patient's free associations. 
So we're going to let him get away with this, team. I guess okay. so. Okay, all right. <laughs> Generous. Okay. <laughs> so throughout this process, Freud reminds us of another mechanism of the dream's work. Um, I mentioned displacement earlier, but he also shows us how this second dream makes use of condensation. Or in Freud's own words, the dream has welded together two experiences from the previous day into one situation in order to bring into expression two discoveries that were not allowed to become conscious. So again, the dream is a vehicle, really, for repressed wishes to appear, and the dream work, which includes those mechanisms that we mentioned of displacement, condensation, and representability, we have to, you know, we have to be able to imagine it. it, has to be something visual. All of these things act in order to allow these forbidden wishes expression and to allow them to avoid the censor. I'm not going to go through Freud's analysis of Hanon's dream today, step by step, because it's such brilliant, tight analysis. Um, you really need to read it yourself. So do do that if you're listening in, um, just to follow the kind of clarity of Freud's argument. But it clearly shows the mutual influence of dream and delusion. You know, how the impact of the dream influences the structure of delusion and then the actions of Hanold himself. It's almost like a kind of tango, you know, this kind of, it's like a dance of desire between these expressions of forbidden wishes and the, you know, and the analysis of this second dream, the discovery of the latent content behind the manifest content really brings us face to face with the wish itself. Mm -hmm. Well, so now after Freud's analysis, he, he offers the latent content between the, the manifest content, the unconscious thoughts that lay behind the remarkably senseless dream. And they were in Freud's words as unlike it as possible. So he says, and this is from the text, he says, she is staying in the sun with her father. Why is she playing this game with me? Does she want to make fun of me? Or can it possibly be that she loves me and wants me to have a husband? Again, a little short passage. Um, so now we have a true meaning of the dream, Tom. Can you take us to the end of part three now, please? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to say, to clarify as well, we said she is staying in the sun. You know, that that's mm -hmm. the name of the hotel that they're staying in as well. So if you haven't read this text, but... You know, it, it does make more sense when, you, when you're when you kind of reading through it. But anyway, in, in the last few pages then of, of part three, it's almost as if uh, Freud is just kind of tying up loose ends, really, before he moves on to his final concluding chapter, which we'll discuss um, in the next episode. Freud's main concern here is really with the notion of ambiguity. So both Hanold and Zoe regularly use ambiguous phrases in the story. But the ambiguity expressed in the speech of each of the characters kind of functions in a different way. Hanold's language is often unintentionally ambiguous. So he speaks in a confused and imprecise manner that betrays these kind of internal conflicts and the delusion that's arisen as a compromise between these kind of competing drives that are within him. Zoe Radiva's speech is intentionally ambiguous. It's as if she speaks enigmatically, and as you say, Jamie, it's an enigmatic speech. 
with her responses, they kind of both accept the structure of Hanold's delusion. And at the same time, they offer a kind of link or a pathway back to reality. So she enters into his delusion then in order to guide him out of it. And it's her ambiguous language as a kind of uncanny echo of Hanold's own speech, which allows him to gradually and safely re-enter the realm of reality. She's kind of Dante's Beatrice in, in, in um, Dante's Divine Comedy. It's the position of the discourse then of the analyst, the discourse of the analyst, as Lacan would, would say, in which the analyst becomes the object um, of desire for the patient that Gradiva occupies and gradually leads Hanold out of his delusion from this position. And we'll see how Freud elaborates on this next week when we look at the final part of Gradiva and Freud's concept of the cure through love. Oh, it's a lovely ending. Thank you so much, Tom. Um, yeah, it was really fun as well, digging into the story and, and these kind of interpretations within the text itself. Um, in the next episode, we'll be looking at the final chapter of Delusions and Dreams in Wilhelm Jensen's Gradiva. But we're also going to be thinking about the impact of Freud's text and the figure of Gridiva herself in 20th century art. She made a huge impression, particularly on the Surrealist group. You can subscribe to our podcast to get not notified of the next episode, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We'll see you then. Take care.